the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette and I'm with Tom and Paul today to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have a number of judgments and new cases that have come through over the Christmas break, as well as apologies from the Mail on Sunday, class action suits against Facebook and more Twitter bans. I want to start with the judgments and I think a good place to start would be Riley and Murray, as I know that Tom uh, is quite enthused by this judgment. Uh, You've done a full podcast on the judgment already, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but just uh, briefly introduce uh, the judgment here. So this was handed down on the 20th of December and in favour of the TV presenter Rachel Riley in her defamation claim against Laura Murray. Listeners will remember that the claim related to a tweet by Miss Murray, which responded to a tweet by Miss Riley that commented on an incident in which Jeremy Corbyn was attacked with an egg. Mr Justice Nicklin has found that because Miss Murray's tweet was stated as fact, it had one meaning, and so the defence of truth failed. The honest opinion and public interest defences also failed because Miss Murray failed to prove the truth of her foundation of the opinion or the reasonable belief that publication was in the public interest. Miss Riley was awarded £10,000 in damages. Tom, as I said, you've already spoken a lot about this in a, uh, another podcast, but um, perhaps you could give listeners a little intro as to what you've spoken about in that other one and convince them to go and listen to the full app. Uh, yes, thanks, Colette. So Paul and I, uh, a little earlier, recorded uh, uh, a podcast where we focused exclusively on this decision. Uh, it will probably not be out quite uh, as quickly as this newscast will be, so listeners can look forward to it in a few days' time, possibly next week, um, as we'll space it out. But it'll be the next uh, the next podcast uh, after this one that you'll find on your podcast feed. Um, this is a decision that has troubled both Paul and I, which is why we devoted an hour or so to talking about it. Um, and uh, I, I, I won't uh, get into our discussion of it here. Uh, safe to say that um, we we raised the issues both of serious harm and of the, the labelling of the substance of Murray's tweet as uh, uh, an assertion of fact rather than an expression of opinion. Uh, we take issue with, uh, with with both of those conclusions. Um, and, and we reflect on what this really says about the state of defamation law in um, England and Wales at the moment. Um, it's in a rather difficult position um, in that it, it doesn't seem well-equipped to respond to rumbunctious opinionated debates on Twitter um, without resorting to highly technical exercises in which one participant in a controversial debate ends up having um, a libel claim against another one, uh, having taken exception to the interpretation that the second person has placed on the tweet by the first person. Um, and all we can see is that, that this will lead to further cases along similar patterns where one person says something ambiguous, it's interpreted by another person in a way that the first person doesn't like, and uh, then you get a, a, a libel claim. Um, it's uh, something I think is going to become very problematic for the courts if they don't get a grip on it quickly. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, listeners uh, can look forward to hearing Paul and I's thoughts about this in 
much more detail in uh, what will be in the next podcast on this channel. That's probably a nice uh, time then to bring up the Blake Seymour Thorpe and Fox decision, uh, which is another example of these you tweet one thing, I tweet another libel claims. Um, this is uh, that the claimants in this were granted relief from sanction, which means that the claim will go ahead. The dispute relates to a Twitter spat between the three claimants, Blake Seymour and Thorpe, and Lawrence Fox. Fox was criticising the supermarket Sainsbury's for their support of the Black Lives Matter movement on Twitter. The claimants tweeted in reply that Fox's criticism demonstrated that Fox was a racist. Fox responded by calling each of the claimants a paedophile, and they now brought a defamation claim against him. Um, he Fox then brought a counterclaim for the allegations that he was a racist, and the claimants failed to serve their reply and defence. Um, however, the court has decided that um, Mr Fox was not given default judgment, and so it, it is set to continue to trial. So we'll keep an eye on that, and of course keep listeners updated. But I want to move on to the, the Harry Miller and the College of Policing judgment, which also came out the same day as Riley, uh, this is a dispute that arose over an allegedly transphobic tweet by Mr. Miller, who describes himself as gender critical. Harry Miller was challenging the police guidance on hate incidents, claiming that the recording of a non-hate, non-crime hate incident interfered with his basic right to freedom of expression. The Court of Appeal has agreed, finding that while the guidance has legitimate aims for preventing crime, those aims could be better achieved by less intrusive measures. Paul, I know you've um, got a lot of thoughts on this judgment. I do. The, um, the simplest way to put it, though, is that the Court of Appeal was wrong. Uh, the, uh, the, more, the lengthier response is that the Court of Appeal was absolutely wrong. The, this, this case itself has uh, a number of different issues going on. I want to try and sort of separate them out. Um, and I should admit that I really struggle with this idea of uh, gender critical debate being a sort of valid, acceptable form of debate. I struggle to understand uh, why that is. It's troubling for me that in the Court of Appeal, a lot of weight was placed on the evidence of Professor Stark. And it's troubling to the extent that um, the fact that Professor Stark, who herself is a controversial figure, her holding opinion, hold, her holding an opinion was found to sort of legitimise uh, what uh, Miller had done and to sort of give weight to it, almost as if the court says, well, because an academic holds these views, there must be a sort of legitimacy to it that, that requires it to be um, protected. Um, I don't follow that at all. I don't really see any difference between a gender-critical view and a sort of race-critical view. Uh, the two, for me, seem very much uh, hand in hand. But I want to put that to, to one side. And I want to think purely in terms of the free speech arguments that were said to be at stake here. In order to understand that, we need to say something very briefly about the facts of Miller. So, And, and we need to say something about what the dispute was about. 
So Miller is someone who admits to holding these these gender critical uh, views that essentially amount to uh, a critical attack on uh, trans people. Um, he holds views that sort of mock and denigrate uh, trans people, and that was evident in the uh, particular tweet that was complained about. This was a sort of limerick, uh, a sort of ditty, uh, where the punchline was at the expense of trans people. Uh, this is not an isolated tweet. Uh, he claims to have tweeted uh, several similar things uh, as part of his sort of campaign. Um, he objected to the police turning up to his place of work in order to take him to task for having uh, retweeted uh, this tweet that was taken to be offensive. Um, specifically, though, this case is not about that. This case is about the reason why the constable in question turned up at uh, Mr. Miller's place of work. And that's because of something called uh, non-crime uh, hate incidents. Now, these non-crime hate incidents uh, are uh, an administrative. They are used by the police to record instances of um, speech that uh, has a hostility to it a bit against a particular group or individuals with particular characteristics. So, for example, it's used by the police in Northern Ireland um, to monitor, perhaps anticipate uh, sectarianism. Um, so that they have a way of sort of monitoring when sectarian violence uh, might occur and where it might occur. Now, in uh, the case that Miller brought against the College of Policing, he was objecting to the way that these non-crime hate incidents are recorded, and he claimed that uh, these incidents, uh, the process of recording them, chills freedom of speech. Why does it chill freedom of speech? Well, he said the fact that there exists a record in which he has been contacted by the police, having been accused of spreading transphobic materials, disseminating transphobic materials, is uh, sufficiently problematic that in future an employer uh, could conduct a criminal record search and use this information against him and deny him uh, employment. Uh, the judge at first instance found that actually this concern was quite far-fetched because um, these incidents, as the name suggests, are non-crime. So there is no criminal record against the individual concerned because it's not a prosecution. It's not a prosecution leading to uh, an outcome. It is merely an administrative tool to record what's going on locally. Um, to the extent that information is kept that is linked to the individual about whom the complaint was made, it's not kept on the national computer system, it's kept on a local system. 
So there are very limited circumstances in which an employer could even find out about this. And um, the according to the court, at first instance, these would be in circumstances where an enhanced criminal records check was necessary. And the police would uh, have the option of disclosing this information to the employer if it was thought relevant to the job that the employee or prospective employee was going for. So the only circumstances the court could really come up with is if Mr. Miller decided to work with vulnerable uh, trans children or vulnerable trans adults. In those circumstances, this information might appear on a criminal records check. Very unlikely in the circumstances. The court also said that if there was any impact on speech under Article 10, it was very limited and in any event justified by the exceptions under Article 10, Paragraph 2, which relates to everyone's duties and responsibilities. Uh, the Court of Appeal, though, agreed with Mr Miller and overruled the judge at first instance to say actually there was a chilling effect on speech that the judge should have considered and that uh, this interference was disproportionate to the outcomes uh, in the guidance. Now, the reason why I find this deeply uh, problematic is that I just can't fathom what the interference with freedom of speech actually is here. To the extent there is any sort of uh, interference, it seems to me highly remote. What's troubling, I think, is that the Court of Appeal just didn't think this through. They sort of accepted, well, there could be a chilling effect on freedom of speech. But freedom of speech to do what? What is it that Mr Miller is saying that he couldn't do because of this distant prospect that a potential employer might in the future find this information out? As compared to the fact that if an employer was sufficiently concerned about Mr Miller's attitudes towards trans people, if they were sufficiently interested, all they needed to do was look on his Twitter feed. There they would have all the information they needed because he's quite open about his gender critical views. So what is, the, what is this threat to freedom of speech? The other mistake I think the Court of Appeal makes is to think that the fact of an interference with freedom of speech is of itself sufficiently serious to count as being disproportionate. Now, part of the problem here is it goes back to my earlier point that the Court of Appeal sort of legitimises gender critical speech as an important form of political speech. I disagree, but that's by the by. Even if we accept that gender critical speech is political expression, there's no absolute right to political expression and the dissemination of political expression. It is, as with everything else, subject to Article 10.2. And although the circumstances in which we might interfere with political expression are less than other types of speech, we still can interfere with it. It's still legitimate for a state to interfere with it. Now, given how limited and really how hard the court had to come up, had to think through at first instance, the very idea that there could be some impact to Mr Miller personally through this visit from the police, given how difficult that was, 
Actually, the proportionality analysis that the Court of Appeal conducted should have gone the other way. It should have found that the distant prospect of a prospective employer holding uh, these gender-critical views against Mr Miller was so fanciful that it couldn't possibly outweigh the value to the police of having this administrative tool at their disposal. Because as I foreshadowed before, this administrative tool is actually very important to the police for ensuring the safety of individuals, especially those with protected characteristics, in certain areas. Now, of course, I, we have uh, no information at this point as to whether there's going to be an appeal by the College of Policing, but I do think it's strange that the Court of Appeal will give in to the sensitivities of the insensitive in these circumstances and risk a very real harm being caused to those that should be protected uh, by the law. Tom, do you have any Yeah, I was just thinking there, um, Paul, when you, you, you said that there's an issue with the Court of Appeal identifying an interference with Article 10 and as immediately jumping to the conclusion that it must be disproportionate um, and, and therefore unlawful. And it reminds me of the work that you've done in, in privacy law, where the same thing arises. The court's treating, um, treating the Article 10 question as a zero-sum game in which either there is a disproportionate interference with Article 10 or there isn't, and not really engaging in the nuanced balancing exercise that we like formally to talk about, but never seems to happen. So is this a kind of, is this the same issue? Is it some sort of spillover in the court's thinking? Yeah, it seems to be. It seems to be, but I think what's frustrating here is that the courts actually recognise the importance of proportionality and purport to conduct the proportionality exercise uh, anew um, and reach such strange, incoherent conclusions based upon it. They just completely got proportionality wrong. It just served to underpin this idea that free freedom of political speech is an absolute that the state cannot interfere with in any circumstances. And yet, with almost the same breath, as we saw in Riley and Murray, they're quite happy to chill speech in other contexts, readily enough, speech that actually was political, quite happy to chill that in order to protect the sensitivities of another insensitive person. So... I think I just get a little bit frustrated with the incoherence that surrounds the judicial understanding of freedom of speech. And unfortunately, a case like this, of course, as we know, is a dog whistle to the transphobic. Mm, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to move us on just because there's a lot more to get through. But thank you very much, Paul, for that excellent summary of um, a very difficult judgment and of course we'll keep everyone posted if there is uh, any, any appeals to it would be the Supreme Court at this point. 
first to mention that there was the apology that we've been waiting for for just under a year to the Duchess of Sussex by the Mail of Sunday. That came out on Boxing Day 2021. It was on the front page and uh, told the readers of the Duchess of Sussex copyright victory. The Mail on Sunday has also been ordered to pay um, Miss Markle substantial damages for the copyright, but we don't know an accurate figure for that, and one pound of nominal damages for the misuse of private information. Another libel update is that Roman, Roman Abramovich's libel claim against the publishers of P the book Putin's People has been settled. Uh, this followed his success in the High Court in November last year, where Mrs. Justice Tipples ruled that the nine statements in the book about him and where he got his money from were in fact defamatory. Um, so that will no longer continue to trial. Um, the BBC has uh, found that an interview with Jeffrey Epstein's former lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, was uh, in breach of their editorial code and they are now launching an investigation. Dershowitz was, uh, has been accused by um, Virginia Jeffrey of sexual assault and he was asked to comment on the conviction of British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, he spent most of the interview trying to exonerate himself and so the BBC has uh, quite correctly apologised for the fact that he's clearly not an impartial analyst. Last week there was the first high profile case of 2022 which began in the High Court with Banks and Cadwallader. Aaron Banks is a businessman and pro-Brexit political donor who is suing the freelance journalist Cadwallader for comments made in her 2019 TED talk, which was ruled to mean that Mr Banks had lied about his relationship with the Russian government and acceptance of foreign funding. Ms Cadwallader is relying on the defence of public interest and has accused Mr Banks of bringing a slap claim against her. This is a strategic lawsuit against public participants participation. Mr Banks denies that his claim is vexatious in any way and he accepts that Cadwallader's TED talk was speaking on a matter of public interest, namely the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the involvement of foreign countries in the democratic process, but he found that the personal criticism leveraged against him in the talk was completely unnecessary, inaccurate and unfair and that's why he's bringing the claim. There's also been some Twitter bans in the past month. Uh, first of all, the po controversial politics for all account and its associated brands News for All were suspended on the 2nd of January, um, as was the account owner Nick Moore. A spokesperson for Twitter said that this account was suspended for violating rules on the platform manipulation and spam um, and no further reasons were given. And in the US, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has been permanently suspended for violating the policies on COVID mis misinformation. The QAnon sympathizer was given her fourth strike in August 2021. And this strike system, which was launched by Twitter last March to try and combat COVID misinformation, uses artificial intelligence to identify posts about COVID that are misleading enough to cause harm. And once you've had five, you're out. Two or three strikes get you a 12-hour ban, four strikes get you a week-long suspension, and of course now she's permanently removed. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the use of AI in these decisions, um, because I think there's, and we've spoken a lot before about the fact that Twitter obviously is a private company and um, they can set their own rules, but the fact that there are algorithms making these decisions, are we comfortable with this? 
there are different contexts in which it arises. Um, some of these algorithms, I, I fully will admit, I don't understand exactly how the uh, ones that they're using here operate. I don't understand exactly how uh, intelligent they are, how sophisticated they are. Um, it's perfectly obvious that certain social media platforms, um, such as YouTube, I've seen this happen with, uh, and I think Twitter as well, may be open to it. Um, but don't quote me on that. I don't know for sure. Um, sometimes suffer manipulation from individuals um, deliberately reporting as inappropriate content um, profiles that, that they don't agree with. So we've seen, for example, some independent um, uh, news and political commentary uh, services being taken down for usually a relatively short amount of time, um, apparently as a result of uh, a kind of organized campaign of reporting uh, their content as inappropriate, even when it isn't, because these users know that you know, these big services will rely upon algorithms to make decisions in the first instance. Um, otherwise, they can't get through the volume of complaints and reports that they get. Um, and there was an incident towards the end of uh, last year when Novara Media's uh, social media accounts were suspended for a time, for example, uh, seemingly as a result of this sort of activity. Um, so I do have some worries about the ability of people to manipulate algorithms where they exist. Once you understand the algorithm, they, they can be manipulated, but they don't make the final decision. Ultimately, this goes to a human being to decide whether a ban should be upheld. Um, and if, you know, it, whether it's the politics for all page or um, uh, Congresswoman Green wishes to make a complaint to some human beings at Twitter, I'm absolutely sure that some human beings will see that complaint and will consider it. Um, I, I should think it's probably probably quite unlikely that the decision will be reversed. Um, I mean, Donald Trump's Twitter page has not been reinstated. I doubt that uh, Marjorie Greene's will be, but uh, uh, there we have it. Paul, do you have a view? Yeah, I don't have a problem with this uh, from a free speech perspective, um, because free speech is usually the first thing that people will say is at stake when these kind of bans take place. For me, this doesn't fit the sort of rights discourse because it sort of presupposes that one has a right to use Twitter. And as I've said previously uh, on the podcast, um, it's really a, a, a claim to have a right to use the most effective or efficient means of communication in order to um, disseminate your message. But the means themselves are privately owned. So... The, the free speech right, such as it is, is a guarantee that's provided by the state. Now, this is something that I think we're going to have to talk about on future episodes uh, of the podcast, because at the moment, an amendment is being proposed to the online safety bill that would uh, not only uh, exclude journalists and newspapers, 
from the ambit uh, of the obligation that's going to be put on um, people like Twitter. Um, but actually, it would prevent uh, Twitter being able to suppress any forms of journalistic uh, speech. Which again, sort of is, is odd. It's sort of government um, interfering with private property rights, which is something that a conservative government would normally be appalled by. Um, this, this for me is very much like um, a pub or a shopping centre imposing uh, a ban on someone, um, barring someone from entering the premises. The circumstances in which the pub or the shopping centre bars people from entering those uh, from entering the property uh, might be arbitrary. They might simply be because they don't like the individual concerned. Um, but that doesn't mean that the uh, state should get involved um, to force uh, the uh, private company to change its mind. Is there not something, though, to be said for the fact that these companies have just become so part of the way that we communicate that they take on more of a public role? I know this is something that Tom's spoken about before when we, when we spoke about Facebook in Australia and the kind of public function it serves. Um, does that not give states new rights to intervene on how these companies conduct their affairs? OK, well, let, let me put it slightly differently then. Let me, newspapers are privately owned organizations okay newspapers have put themselves in a position where they perform what's said to be a vital role in democratic participation that's one of the reasons why judges protect newspapers in the way that they do but no judge that i'm aware of has said that that means that an individual another private individual can claim space in a newspaper for free or demand that a newspaper print their information to um, a wider audience. We, we don't accept as a general rule this sort of right to reply, for example. Uh, America very briefly flirted with the idea, but it was quickly shut down. So we don't apply this logic with newspapers. Why should we start applying it to internet companies? Tom, you were... I was just going to say that the notion that companies of the size of Twitter and Facebook have become such important infrastructure tools for communication that they ought to, in essence, become public property is a kind of... Um, radical left-wing view if you were to apply it to any other form of property rights then you would say that that is quite obviously kind of radical left-wing um let's take over the infrastructure um and uh, it entirely depends on your political perspective whether um you, you think that that idea uh, has legs but what i would say is is, is that paul is absolutely right um given uh, the, the nature of that political view, it is frankly astonishing to see conservative government um, proposing uh, uh, legislation of this nature. Um, yeah, it's unexpected. But, and it seems to me to be aimed at achieving 
a very narrow short-term goal, which is the ability to ensure that those speakers on Twitter who are politically aligned with the government don't find themselves done. Um, so it is ideologically incoherent um, in a way that probably doesn't surprise us anymore with the way that recent governments in both the UK and the US uh, have, have set themselves up. Um, it's ideologically incoherent, um, but that doesn't seem to be stopping them. And it doesn't seem to be stopping influencing their activists on the ground. Um, the sorts of people who could influence government policy and say, this is not what we have been voting for for the last 50, 60 years. Sticking with social media, just for the final two headlines today, um, I just want to mention that there's been a class action claim worth $3.2 billion filed against Meta, which is the owners of Facebook, in the UK Competition Appeal Tribunal. The claim is on behalf of British Facebook users between 2015 and 2019 and alleges that Facebook unfairly made billions of pounds by imposing unfair terms and conditions that demanded consumers surrender valuable personal data to access their network and that this was only possible because uh, as a result of an abuse of their dominant position in the market. Um, So we will continue to follow this case and keep listeners updated on Newscast as it moves through the tribunal process. And finally, the House of Representatives panel investigating the January 6, 2021 riots at the United States Capitol building has subpoenaed the parent companies of Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit for information about how their platforms were used to spread misinformation in a failed bid to overturn the 2020 election results. Um, again, as we have more information on how the uh, the panel investigation goes we will keep you updated unless you do have any comments on those final two headlines i think uh, we can round up for today okay well thank you very much for listening and uh as ever follow us on twitter at media law podcast and we will be back with more newscasts again and do listen to the uh, riley and murray news sorry not newscast podcast coming out in the next week or so thank you very much for joining me guys cheers, cheers bye